The Mayfly is up and the excitement is palpable. Wherever you are in Ireland, the lakes and rivers are soon to be hatching with Mayfly soon. And to help you improve your catch rate this season, we've used a Mayfly Tactics Masterclass with international angler, guide and renowned tire, Jackie Mann. If you want to learn about setup, tactics, conditions and flies, then head over to www.irelandonthefly.com forward slash masterclass where you can find out all the details to access the recording and Jackie's notes. If you want to catch that difficult fish or try out new tactics, then this masterclass is for you. Hello and welcome to the Ireland on the Fly podcast about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland. For this week's episode, I speak to Monica Hayes, who has produced a six-part radio documentary series for KCLR called Make Way for the King. It is a documentary series that not only informs and motivates, but also calls for action in protecting and conserving the salmon population in the River Noor. Monica spoke to scientists about the future of our iconic fish, and also captured the memories of days gone by from local gillies and anglers, whom you'll also hear from in this podcast episode. Make Way for the King is a documentary of interest not just to salmon anglers, but to those worried about protecting the fish. And I first asked Monica about how her own interest in the story came about. I have no background in salmon, no background in fishing. Um, the idea came about, I work as a project programme producer within KCLR. I'm always having an eye out and an ear open to projects that we can get funding for. Um, and this came, we got information about this um, NASCO project through um, another state agency. And I suppose I put on my thinking cap Um thought about what we could do and what we could deliver given the fact that we have our wonderful river nor flowing through Kilkenny um, I suppose I also have an interest in conservation and in nature so um, from there I put put together um, a pitch for an idea which was I suppose um, supported and given I, I, I got given advice um, about it from Professor Ken Whelan who is a salmon expert here in Ireland um, and he has contributed a lot as well to the themes and the topics of the six programmes. And actually, we'll, we'll hear from uh, Ken actually in a minute talking about the, um, I suppose, the historical background to the salmon and the nor. But like a good journalist, you are, you know, you, you, you come up with an idea, you see there's a potential for, for a scope for this idea. What I think is remarkable as well is that it's a, you developed into a six-part series. So it wasn't just a one-off documentary. Um, a huge amount of work. I know myself having done documentaries and worked in radio. Six-parter is a lot of work got into it. Yeah, there's a lot of work. And I suppose um, it is and it is and has been quite daunting to f- fill um, those. It's, it's Each program is two hours. So to fill six two-hour programs with salmon, you know, it, it is... It is daunting to do that. At the same time, I'm being really surprised at how uh, easy it is to do it too, because people have a huge passion for, first of all, the river, and second of all, salmon. Um, and that is really uh, lovely to see, to witness, and to hear then in the programmes. So, um, and then also true connections, you know, I would ring one person, and they would say, oh, you need to talk to somebody else. Somebody else has this story. And um, from there, then my contacts grew and keep are keeping on growing now as, as the programmes progress. So what are the six episodes covering? 
So um, we start off with a look at memories of the old times of salmon fishing on the Noor when salmon were plentiful, um, a bit of nostalgia and a bit of history. And then we delve in, in the second programme, we look at actually the salmon themselves, their life cycle on the Noor, their, their spawning habits. Um, we, we touch a little bit on the importance of water quality and habitat. And we also keep an eye and an ear out to the anglers and what gear they use, you know, uh, the tie-in of, of flies, um, the, the lines and the nets and the rods. Um, I suppose the beauty of these programmes is that there's a whole range of different contributors. Like we have anglers, we have scientists, we have historians. Um, there's also community activists and uh, state agencies also, people representing state agencies also involved in it. So there's a lovely range of voices and stories because of that. Um, going forward, we touch on, as you know, the, the, the number of salmon in our rivers has, has plummeted over the years. Um, and that's a major concern. And I suppose the origins of this programme series is to look at that. So we look at, um, you know, global warming, the impact of pollution, um, overfishing in the Atlantic Ocean, some of these um, things that are happening that are causing the number of, of, of salmon to decrease and to come back to our rivers. Um, so, and then the last programme then, I suppose, ties into the name of the programme series, Make Way for the King. We kind of look at, well, how can we make way for the king? The salmon is the king of the fish. How can we do more to make way for it? Um, what can we as individuals in our small way do to to make sure that the numbers of salmon are conserved um, and that they keep coming back to our rivers? Sounds incredible, uh, Monica, and you've covered so many bases there and, and really there is so much and I think what's important in terms of what you said there is the fact that it's it's not just anglers you were speaking to, it was conservation, it was environmental, it was scientists, it was state agencies and, you know, you don't have to be a fly angler or into fishing to appreciate the salmon, um, especially in terms of their endangered um, position within the um ecosystem at the moment so i think this will definitely be of, of interest just beyond just uh similar anglers themselves did you were you surprised at anything that you learned from it i suppose because you were kind of coming in at it from as a from an outsider's perspective but were you shocked at kind of how endangered they are looking to the future i am and i i feel kind of a sadness about it um what sticks in my head um i guess from conversations uh, with with the anglers um, and with the scientists, with Professor Ken Whelan in particular, I've learned, you know, that salmon are a key indicator species and they're showing us, to us, like what's happening in the ocean, what's happening in our environment. And, you know, they're suffering, you know, they're com maybe coming back with disease, but they're also coming back in smaller numbers. And if that's what's happening to the salmon, then what's happening to the other creatures in the ocean and what ultimately will happen to us as, as a human race. So um, I think, you know, there's it there's there's a reason why, you know, in mythology and in not not just mythology in, in Ireland, but in, in uh, mythology all over the world, the salmon always play a part in that and our salmon of knowledge story is quite significant in in that you know um the salmon are giving us 
knowledge and given us information that we should pay heed to um, and maybe we should take time to look at our own actions and how it's impacting on global warming and on the environment. I think that's a really nice way of putting it actually yeah because obviously traditionally there was the salmon of knowledge but like you said they're still giving us the knowledge maybe not in the kind of practical sense of food um, and sustenance now but they are very much kind of the, the canary in the coal mine in many respects uh, in terms exactly. of what's going to the future. Um, obviously Casey Law it's, it's Kilkenny and Carlow on the River Noor um, there's a big history of um, salmon fishing there on the River Noor uh, and um, you spoke to Ken Whelan um, about the kind of tradition and kind of how far back the actual presence of salmon is in the Noor in the area didn't you? We did. Um, once again, like we were so lucky to have him as a part of the series. Um, and he like he contextualized to us and for us and for our listeners just how how long the salmon have been coming to our rivers, you know. And he also went on to kind of reflect, as, as I've just been talking about, the significance of salmon in, in cultures all over the world. And I suppose it's due to their longevity in our waters that we really um, need to take time and, and, and put in an effort to conserve them. Well, let's have a listen to, to Professor Whelan um, explaining the, the kind of long tradition of, of the salmon in the north. Yeah, the salmon, uh, not alone in the north, but the salmon in Ireland have been around for at least 10,000 years. But a very interesting thing about the north, the barrow and the shore is the fact that genetically they are very, very, very special. And we think that they were perhaps some of the very first salmon to colonise rivers in Ireland because their genetics is just so different. And we know that fish like char, which is a lovely colourful fish that we have in some of our lakes left over from the Ice Age, trout and salmon started to nose into these rivers about 14,000 years ago. And we think some of the earlier inquisitive fish probably came by us here in Thomastown. So I think that's a fantastic note to begin things, to think that we're looking back all those years. And our job really now is to protect and conserve this absolutely fantastic creature. So Professor Ken Whelan there explaining the uh, kind of long tradition of um, salmon in the Noor. But Monica, did you find though a lot of the time when you're kind of delving into salmon fishing, um, a lot of it was in the past tense, in the sense of memories from the anglers, you know, talking about the good old days. Yeah, and anglers love to talk about the good old days. You know, our programme would have ended at six o'clock uh, on that Tuesday evening, but like they were still there. It was an outside broadcast. They were still there at half six, gathered together on the wall, socially distanced, but chatting away about the old times and their memories of salmon fishing. Um, we were lucky to have... Um, the likes of, of Eddie Cody, um, who whose father worked the big net in Inishtig, and he he talked about you know t- this the significance of the salmon within the local economy uh, as regards generating money for the people in the village, um, and how the salmon then would have been collected by an exporter from New Ross who would have sent the salmon to London via Ross Lair to be there the next day at the at the fish markets. Um, like I find it very hard to put my mind into those times now, given the fact that I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to see a salmon in the river. And I know other anglers would have the same difficulty because um, their numbers are so few. Um, I suppose we were lucky um, as well to, to connect with um 
there was a lot of um, landed gentry um, living around Thomastown and and Inishtig, and they kind of played a huge role in in the in the fishing enterprise as well. Um, the the McCalmonts and Mount Juliet and the Thai family in Inishtig, so they kind of controlled the fishing and um, and the river. Um, so we also had Joe Dunphy, who was a, a former school principal in Ballyhale in County Kilkenny, and his father worked with the Macalmounts, um, and he had some great stories as well um, from those days. Let's have a listen to uh, Joe's memories there. My father and my grandfather were both the fishermen in Mount Juliet in the estate. They were, they were the fishermen there back in the 20s, 30s, uh, before I was born, actually. And, uh, of course, my father fished up practically up to the day he died, you know. And when you say they were the fishermen in the estate, what exactly did that mean? Well, they were, they were working for the McElmount estate as fishermen. They worked, say, as gillies. Uh, when McElmounts wanted salmon, they just uh, told them to go out and get them. And I talked to a lady there one time who was working in the house. And uh, she'd asked my father, There's somebody coming today, we need a salmon. And his answer invariably was, sure, no problem, what size? Not nowadays, you wouldn't get that. It is incredible, isn't it, Monica? Like the kind of the rich history. Uh, I know myself having done a few documentaries that it's a bit of a goldmine, I think, in terms of the rich cultural past. And it's, it's, it's crying out to be recorded and um, kept for posterity's sake because it, you know, it's changed so much. I'm fascinated by um, Shem Caulfield's talking about the, the different boats and the cot racing. You might just talk about a bit about that. Yeah, um, like I'm no expert now on on the river and on salmon fishing, but I do know that each river seemed to have its own type of of boat from which they'd fish the salmon from. And these boats were called cots. They'd work in in pairs, and there'd be a net between them, and the fishermen would use that net then to catch up the the, the fish. Um, Shem Caulfield, um, he's a Thomastown man. He's really involved in all things to do with the river. Um, and a few years ago, he would have got funding to build a replica cot. Um, um, and he did a lot of research in order to do that project on cots um, and discovered the link between those cot boats that were fishing, but also then racing cots. Um, racing cots became very popular in the Victorian ages and they used to be great regattas on the river, um, on the River Nore, like over the years, um, which would have brought fierce competition seemingly to, to families um, and communities around the place. And he told us a, a lot about, about that and it was fascinating. Uh, there's a whole tradition, as you know, of boats that are indigenous to the various rivers. And there's a great tome uh, produced for rivers uh, in Ireland and it'll show you just a vast range of boats that were developed locally for particular rivers. And uh, the cot or the Norcot is 19 to 21 foot long pointed both ends in recent years now there have been cutbacks they've cut and put a transom on for for an outboard um, and there's again a huge tradition that's lost here uh, now of racing particularly in the late victorian era era here and uh, some fantastic competitions we had teams from the uk coming over here to challenge the very best of of us but uh, I just tell you one, like uh, I did a bit of research in terms of some of the great uh, boats of the time, the great racing boats, and they'd be developed from the competitions between fishermen the whole way from Thomastown down to Ross and further on, down as far as Waterford. 
and uh, some of the great the names were the Duranon, the Green Diver, right, the Norlas, all of those, and on the shore as well you had, um, uh, God, uh, great boat builders along there. But I don't know if you remember the great. Dotty Power had his birthday, 104. I surely did. He was in the Irish Times. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Doing good. Well, Dottie, he was parked yeah. up there a few years ago, and uh, you know, Dotty has a fantastic memory. He was parked up on the on uh, Market Street there one day, so I said I'd try him out, and I tapped the window, and he said, "Well, young Caulfield," and I said, "The Duranon, the Green Diver, round the arse fecking things." He said, "You couldn't stay in him," <laughs> <laughs> and he knew immediately what they were. He said he greased the bottoms of them above at Ireland's inch back in the 30s or 40s, you know. So um, that tradition uh, and that racing tradition was very, very strong. They say at the Pink Rock, at the turn of the last century now... That's halfway between here and Innistig, isn't no, it? No, the Pink Rock now would be... Uh, oh, the Pink, down, that then, not, yeah. not the Fourpenny Rock is yeah. what I'm thinking of, yeah. There was up to 40,000 people at yeah. a regatta there, which is a huge That's number. That's down where the new bridge is now. Yeah, down yeah. about there, yeah, at, uh, at that... So, uh, as I said, the Victorians were big into their outdoor sport, rowing, paddling, all of that, and, um, uh, and caught racing really took off. Coming out of that, Monica, um, drift nets was obviously another issue that you kind of explored, and people maybe forget about kind of what a big role they played and then how contentious they were at the time. Uh, maybe just give me a bit of background to that. Yeah, I suppose I I have memories going back 20 years ago where I had just seen placards around the place, you know, that said stop drift netting now and save our salmon. Um, and that period of time was recalled as well during the the programme. Um, Sue had done an, arc, an, an interview with a local fisherman in 1991. His name was Ned, Ned Ryan, and he was an angler and um, an activist. And he was well before his time in what he had to say, you know, about drift nets um, and about how, like, wonderful the salmon were to be able to still continue to come back to the river at that time, despite all the obstacles that were in their course, in, in their way, uh, in making their way back back down. And um, she would always uh, love the line that he says at the end, that they deserve a medal, those salmon, and we should really protect them. Let's have a listen to uh, that fascinating clip of Ned Ryan from 1991. I recommend that Driftnet have to be either curtailed or scrapped completely. There's no law or order down on the western seaboard, down into Kerry. They don't even bother buying a license now. They're supposed to fish with 40 foot boats. They get a, a license for a small boat, take out a 60 foot one. There's about 1500 miles of monofilament up in Donegal. That's the first thing the salmon meets after coming off of the, out of the Pharaoh, out the feeding ground. They meet 1500 miles of monofilament. The, it's the Donegal Wall. And from there then down to Kerry, it's ruthless game. And how they get down is a miracle. In fact, the two get down should be decorated. So they should, they should, they should be some kind of a medal for a man. They definitely shouldn't be killed. Hopefully some, someday, will wake up to the idea and, and, and stop this. Because we're the only country in the world now really have salmon, plenty. And we're the only country in a position to maintain and increase that. And it's a wonderful thing to have to say. You have this wonderful fish, the, 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 the king of fish, actually. As you said, a golden fish is he has. And he is gold now because he's golden. And the soon they wake up and, and do something about it. I mean, after all, I don't want to deprive anybody of a living. 
But then again, nobody's entitled to destroy any species, whether to be frogs or ghosts or foxes or you name it, or badgers from the ghosts of that. There's nobody in, in, entitled to destroy any species. In, in the, we should hand over our state to our children, the same as our grandfathers and our grandparents did down through the years, hand it over to us. We should hand it over the same to our children and our future generation. And hopefully it's headed for that somebody somewhere along the line will wake up to it and say, enough is enough. Just on the drift nets, Monica, um, Professor Ken Whelan then um, had a lot to say on this as well. He did. Uh, Professor Ken Whelan took up on that. Um, I mean, it was a very politically fraught uh, situation and a debate. And um, he he expanded on that, uh, along with Bobby Wims as well, who was also very active at the time in Thomastown in in. Um, in, in wanting to ban the drift nets, which they were successful in doing. The campaigning started in 2003. Uh, it was the first, thanks to Ken and some of the other uh, scientists, we now had a, a rationale as to why drift nets should go. I mean, there was, there was suddenly there was a logical reason as to why uh, guys out of the sea couldn't indiscriminately catch fish that were going to rivers that had full of salmon, but also rivers that had very little salmon. So the only way to stop that, to protect the, the, the species in the, the endangered rivers, was to stop the whole thing. And that started the campaign, and uh, it lasted four years, four, four tough years, and uh, we were up against 888 drift net licenses. And politics. And politics. And, uh, but the science w- w- won out. Europe went out to a large extent, um, and we were just, uh, we had an enormous support from anglers and um, particularly anglers, I suppose, but, but generally people who just felt that salmon was worthwhile preserving. Why was it that so many drift net licenses were given out in the 1960s? It wasn't just by chance. And I think, uh, as scientists, I think maybe we've a little bit to add to the story. Because only relatively recently we began to understand the kind of numbers of fish that were at sea and how these vary. And there is no doubt about it. I first came across it when my dad came home and told us that they were selling salmon in the local chipper and the salmon was cheaper than cod. And that was in the early 1960s. And our science backs that up because in the early 1960s there was an incredible survival of salmon at sea. And we now know that coming back to the Irish coast at that time, there was somewhere in the region of between a million and a million and a half salmon coming back to the Irish coast. So there was actually an enormous surplus of salmon coming back to these wonderful salmon factories that were producing them. And of course, the politicians then realised that there was a few votes in this. And they started then to give out drift net licences like confetti. But a lot of people that got drift net licences were people with professions. So there was um, army officers, there was guardee, all sorts of people got these drift net licences. But the reason for that was because of the surplus. But as the numbers of fish started to drop, of course there was no sign of the numbers of nets dropping. So that's when it became really seriously problematic. problematic. Just finally, uh, Monica, in terms of the overall series, um, do you get it? Do you think there's a certain maybe appreciation maybe more of the nor overall within the kind of cultural, historic, uh, environmental landscape within um, the region, you know, that you get an appreciation of it from a past, past perspective, but also then how important it still is um, for the future. 
Yeah, I think so. When you look back at the history of the river, you know, um, it was, you know, maybe years and years ago, it was looked on as a sacred space. There would be loads of monks and hermits set up along the river and they'd look at that as a prime location for their own spiritual advancement. And then it kind of came... um, a highway for for trade and for economics and there was lots of mills and weirs set up on it the weirs to catch the fish or the eels or whatever and and now it's like uh, we use it i guess more so for recreation purposes um and you know might maybe fish only a few might fish on it but you know maybe use it for canoeing or or other water sports um I think that it over the years has been ignored a little bit by by people. Um, I think though more and more that people recognize how important water is and good clean water is to not just the, the, the creatures in the river, but also to their own health. So I hope that this program series will also then go on to reaffirm that and um, to go a little bit in reconnecting people to to water and and to nature again and of course ultimately as well to the salmon who are so at risk and vulnerable at the moment in the river no you're so right um i i live in tipperary and and, you know i'd often be driving through kilkenny and it always strikes me especially if it's the weekend uh, you're driving through kilkenny and you drive over the river over the bridge and you know the restaurants and bars well this was pre-covid obviously would be packed and people would be out and about and you kind of wonder, you know, the, the 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 city grew up around the river, you know, gave such sustenance to people. And now we've kind of we took rivers for granted. Now there's obviously obviously a lot more awareness of the of how important they are environmentally. But I still think we kind of take it for granted that it's just something that flows by, um, and how many yeah. people actually stop to kind of look and kind of go and appreciate what it is. The only thing I would say is I think maybe since COVID we've nearly gotten more of an appreciation now of the outdoors and of, of nature and environment so the one thing i'm hopeful maybe as a result of kind of 2020 is that there is much more of an appreciation but the flip side of that probably is there's still less people fishing um i think it was joe who mentioned it there is that you, you hardly see anybody in the river now that's right yeah he was afraid that he'd he'd be dead by the river and nobody would find him um and that's a that is a, a struggle with a lot of the angling clubs would also say that they have no young members uh, to keep that club going and I guess you know what I've come to realize is that the anglers are the people who have the interests of the fish and what's in the river at their hearts as well Um, and they're the ones that would would know what's going on and have that connection to it so it's important that young people do engage with it and um, you know take up that mantle of guardianship that the anglers and the angling clubs have at the moment. Well, Monica, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. The series, um, it's an incredible piece of work, six-part series called Make Way for the King. It's on KCLR. It's on, it can be listened to, is it every week on um, KCLR96FM.com, is it? Yes. If you look up our website, um, you'll find all the programmes will be uploaded to the Make Way for the King uh, webpage. So each Wednesday, we'll have each new programme uploaded to there. So you can listen back to it there. And I hope that people will enjoy it. Salmon anglers definitely will. Um, and, you know, <laughs> they'll definitely appreciate it in terms of the stories, um, you know, from what you've heard in terms of people's memories. But 
like we said, it's it's also the bigger picture here in terms of the environment and, and the future of the fish is, is what's being addressed as well. So um, definitely check it out. It's on caseylaura96fm.com. Monica Hayes, congratulations for, for producing an incredible six-part series. Thank you very much, Dara. And I just want to say a thank you to the presenter of the programme, who's Sue Nunn, who's doing a fabulous job with her enthusiasm and interest in the programme series um, and her lovely engagement with her contributors. And she's really um, enhancing the programme with all those attributes. So thank you to Sue as well. My thanks to Monica Hayes for joining me on the show. And to listen to the series, just go to caseylaurin96fm.com. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the Ireland on the Fly podcast on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also keep up to date on IrelandOnTheFly.com as well as on Instagram and I'll be back with another episode about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland. The Mayfly is up and the excitement is palpable. Wherever you are in Ireland, the lakes and rivers are soon to be hatching with Mayfly soon. And to help you improve your catch rate this season, we've used a Mayfly Tactics Masterclass with international angler, guide and renowned tire, Jackie Mann. If you want to learn about setup, tactics, conditions and flies, then head over to www.irelandonthefly.com forward slash masterclass where you can find out all the details to access the recording and Jackie's notes. If you want to catch that difficult fish or try out new tactics, then this masterclass is for you.